0: After this, Elizabeth became pregnant and went into seclusion for five months. There is no precedence for this in anywhere in Jewish history. There's no precedence in our day either. When a woman finds out she's pregnant, she generally doesn't go into seclusion for five months. She usually comes out and tells her friends, and there's some kind of a uh, a party. There's some kind of an announcement that is made, right? They start thinking about names. They start buying stuff for the house. When a couple finds out they're gonna have a child, there's excitement. There isn't retreat. This wasn't the pattern even then. What is happening in that five months? That is the question. In between the time she hears the promise, you're pregnant. And the time she has the child is a long period of seclusion. Volgren, Austria, is a little village that's nestled in the Alps in Austria. People go there in the summertime to walk along rivers, long, lazy walks. They'll ski in the wintertime. It's a small town like a little burg it has shopkeepers and teachers and a couple doctors it's kind of like Marion only it's in the Alps and and the rivers are a little wider and a little more flowing than the Mississippi and every year they sponsor what is known as the the conference for the society of the deceleration of time. (laughs) What they're trying to do is to get people to slow down. So they have conferences and they have like seminars, only the seminars don't start at 2 o'clock. There's a sign on the door that says when the time is right, (laughs) People come when the time is right, and the conference lasts for as long as it takes, and then when they feel like going, they just go. So in other words, they don't just talk about slowing down. They actually slow down. People walk to work instead of drive. They'll loiter on the street corner. They'll take longer to eat. They even have a speed trap. If they catch you going more than 50 meters in 37 seconds or less, they pull you over, and they make you give an account for why you are going so fast. Don't take them lightly. They have seriously put together a proposal and sent it to the International Olympic Committee asking them to give medals for the slowest time. <laughs> It's part of this slow movement right now that started really, we think, in Europe. It's all over Italy. There's several towns. It's really a loose-knit affiliation of towns, mostly under 50,000 people, mostly live off the land, mostly stay within their little burg. That is, they don't commute in and out. They know one another. They're real tight-knit communities, and everything they do is slow. It's kind of uh, in resistance to this fast-paced movement. Over on this side of the Atlantic, we have the other problem. Speed. Everything is faster, better, bigger, stronger. And it's only faster for a few seconds. Right after that, we're going to come up with something even faster yet. And so most of us are caught up in what Carl Honore calls the cult of speed. Are you? Have you found yourself hurrying through everything? Do you find yourself putting something in the microwave and then standing over it? Come on. Waiting for the fast coffee? The Keurig machine. Come on! Driving down the bypass, <laughs> looking for the lane with the fewest cars, standing in Myers in the express lane, counting the items in a basket, times the number of people in front of you, and then choosing your lane accordingly. I've told you before that when I go through drive-throughs, I will make a decision whether I actually run in or go through the drive thru based on how much time it will take. If I decide to go in, I mark the car that was in front of me, and then I will jump in the store and try to order really fast and run back out and check to see if I beat the car. I was telling that story once, and... A friend of ours named Todd Voss, uh, he says that he has it even worse. He, on uh, one occasion, sent his wife, Julie, into the fast food restaurant while he stayed in the car on their cell phones. And so while he's waiting in line, she's in line in the store, and if he is going to pull up to the drive through first, he calls her on the cell phone and says, abort, 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 I'm next, I'm next. She can then run out, get in the car, and they will have saved time. It's the cult of speed. Honore, I'm reading his book called In Praise of Slowness a few years ago and hating it. (laughs) And he says, fast is not simply the speed of movement or the rate of change. Fast is a way of being. It's a philosophy of life. Fast is busy, controlling, aggressive, hurried, analytical, stressed, superficial, impatient, active, impetuous, quantity over quality, it occurs to me that I am caught in the cult of speed. I'm reading the Christmas story again this year and I'm struck by the number of people that have to wait. I am struck with how long this story takes. This is striking. Everyone is waiting. Israel's waiting for the Messiah. King Ahaz, Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 7, is waiting for the allies to come in to save him. In the New Testament, Simeon, the old man, is waiting for the consolation of Israel. Just outside is Anna, the prophet. She's waiting for the redemption of Israel. There's an old couple that's waiting to have a child. Seems like everyone in this Christmas story is in a hurry-up-and-wait mode. And the thought occurs to me that the opposite of fast is not slow, it's wait. It's learning how to wait. In between the time you hear a promise and the time that you have the baby, it's what you do in those five months in seclusion. It's what Advent is. Advent doesn't mean simply the arrival, the coming of Jesus. No, no, that's the end of Advent. Advent is the whole drama. It's wanting something so bad that you can't control and waiting in seclusion for that to get here. And then when it comes, you celebrate. We don't do Advent well. It used to be that families, communities, would wait until Christmas Eve. It's not that they forgot Christmas was coming. They just waited. And then on Christmas Eve, that's when the family went out, cut down the tree, hauled it in, put it up, sang Christmas carols, decorated the tree, ate the figgy pudding, and then one day later, you opened the gifts. You say, what? That's like a two-minute offense. That's <laughs> yes, but... <laughs> it was the arrival of Christmas. But Christmas was already being celebrated when there was nothing in front of them yet. It was the whole period. Now what we do is we bring it out in used to be November. No, it was first of December. What, 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 what wasn't it? Then it was November, and now it's like before Halloween. Lowe's has trees up. This is the three month, and I got a feeling that what it actually does is it bleeds the energy out of Christmas. Instead of having a big moment, you have it an inch at a time, right? And so when it actually gets here, you're like, hmm, what was that? Always seems much to do about nothing because the anticipation has been bled earlier and earlier. Christmas is a summons to wait. Christmas means This is um, caricatured in two women, two women without children, for opposite reasons. One is too old; the other's too young. One's probably in her eighties, Elizabeth. The other one is in her mid-teens, Mary. One is barren; the other a virgin. Both of them get visited by an angel named Gabrielle, who says he stands in the presence of God. And when he shows up, he speaks to them in private and tells both of them that they will have a child. Both of them are incredulous when they hear this. But from that point, their lives diverge. Elizabeth's life Will get better. Mary's will feel worse. Elizabeth sees this as the end of her disgrace. It will be the beginning of Mary's disgrace. She is yet unmarried. Appropriately, Advent begins with a pregnancy. Because when a woman finds she's pregnant, she has the child, and yet she doesn't have the child. So she celebrates, even though the child is not here yet. Yes, there's enthusiasm, naming, buying, all of the fanfare. She carries the child, And yet she doesn't yet have the child. She doesn't, in a sense, hold the child. And so Advent is about the arrival of something that we have waited for nine months to get here. This is the story of of Elizabeth. Elizabeth is kind of like Israel in this sense. She is very old and she is barren. Hopeless, alone, defeated, despair. Say, no, I think you're overstating that. No, actually, in that day, for a woman to not be able to have children was a really, really serious problem. Children were were your security. They were the way that you influenced the world. They They were your mark on things. They were one of the things in this world, one of only a few that you bonded with. They were God's gift to you. And so while everyone around you is having children, for you not to be able to have one, this is an area that only God can control we have no medicine for this. Not then. Feels awful lot like a curse from God. And then there is that moment when her husband comes back, and I don't know how he said it because he was mute. He must have written. He must have said. I hope he told her because when he was in the temple, he was standing there, and Gabriel appeared at the right of the temple, and at the right of the altar. Gabriel said. Don't be afraid. You have found favor. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife will have a child. She's in her 80s. And this is a good thing at that point. So he must have come home, and he must have. I hope he did. I hope he said something to her. Advent begins when an 80-year-old says, I think I'm pregnant. And she goes into seclusion five months. And she goes through the arduous process of coming out of exile. To the best of my knowledge, people that are alone and uh, in despair, we go through three stages. And I see all three of these in Elizabeth's life. One of them is the stage of grief. A second is the stage of hope. We grieve and then we hope. And the third is the stage of waiting. When we grieve, like someone who is unable to have children, when all of our friends are, we stand in company with all of Israel through the centuries. To grieve is to live in exile. And exile is not something that happens just to nations or to churches. While I'm speaking this subject of exile the last 10 or 11 weeks, you know, it's occurred to me that exile is personal. Exile is local. Exile does not happen simply to nations. It happens to individuals too. It happens to families. And so while I'm speaking this whole series, this other half of my brain is having conversations and stories and living in the tension, the anxiety, the loss, the failure, the defeat, the being passed over of people that have lost spouses to lovers online, of people that have lost children suicide. Those that have lost jobs to the market, they've lost money in retirement. And it occurs to me, this is not something that is happening to a whole church. This is happening to people with names. and It's, it's you. It's happening to you. And I've sensed halfway through this t- that you must have come on some weeks with your own exile and thought to yourself, you know what, I don't care what's happening to the rest of the church. What I care about is what's happening to me. You can't get past your own story to even think about the bigger picture. It's grief. When we grieve, we own the loss of something we admit to the losses and we sit down in it. We don't make threats, we don't argue, we don't try to figure God out. We just continue to want something very badly that we cannot have. And when we grieve, please hear this, we don't stop wanting it. To grieve is to live in between two poles. One is resignation, and the other is foreclosure. To grieve is to live this side of resignation. It is to want something so bad that you cannot control, but you can't give up on. So you resign yourself to the fact that you may never have it, and yet you don't quit. See, most of us have two modes. One of them is called control, and the other one's called quit. We try to control something when we can't have it, and when it first occurs to us that we're not going to get it, we quit wanting it. It's the way that we give up. So most of us really are not very good at wanting something we cannot have without quitting on it. We have a hard time loving someone who may never love us back without saying, I don't love them anymore. You see what I mean? When it's not going to come, we say, I don't need it. This is not to grieve. To grieve is to live between those two poles and to say, I can't help but want it. I can't walk away, and yet I may never have it. And then suddenly, I don't know when, God will come in from the outside And he will make an outrageous statement. He sends Israel to their room for 70 years. Basically says in exile, go to your room and sit there. And so Israel goes over and lives in exile for 70 years. And then out of the clear blue, a prophet named Isaiah comes walking in and says to them, hear the word of the Lord. See, I'm doing a new thing. Can you not perceive it? No. (laughs) He says, I'm making a way in the desert. I'm cutting a stream in the wasteland. I'm bringing water to my people so that they may proclaim my glory. These are the people I formed for myself. This is a promise. And the thing is, everybody in exile wants that to be true but they've been in exile so long they can't really afford to believe it anymore. Because, you know, after you don't have something for a long time, the way you live is to protect yourself from false promises so you don't get duped into believing something. This is clearly the temptation Israel must fear. And God's word comes from the blue. And yet it is anchored in the past. Has there ever come a time when, uh, in your grief, God has uttered a word to you? Sometimes, when we're in despair, the temptation is to put the Bible down because it doesn't make sense anymore. It's not relevant, we say. I don't know how to apply the Bible to my life. Have you not heard the Bible is your life? It is your story. You spend most of your life in Advent. God gives you a promise like He implants an embryo in a womb. You have it, and yet you do not have it. You're in between the promise and the fulfillment. You want a better life, believe you'll get it, but you don't have it yet, do you? It's hope. When God speaks to you a word of hope, you will know it is God. It is not yourself. When it comes to you rooted in the past, but it isn't stuck in the past, you know, it's a new word, and yet it's consistent with what he has said to people before. And it always seems outrageous. It's always something so big that you could never do it, and yet you have to do something But only God could do this. And there will be a sense when you hear this word, your energy rises and you go, this is good. You'll think and you'll act as though it has already happened. And yet, like so many of God's promises, nothing has really happened. He'll just make a rash statement. And then you step back and look at your life and it'll feel like nothing has changed. And yet there is this word from God that says, this is what I will do like somebody handing you a flower, and, and the tendency, uh, le- the problem is that when somebody hands me a, a, a flower, which is God's word to me, m- this is where education almost always gets in my way, stop, pause, time out, education is a wonderful thing, but there is a double edge to this thing. The moment you hear a word from God, you are always tempted to analyze it, scrutinize it, dissect it and wonder, is that really the word for me? Is that really? You have all this second guessing that takes place. It's like somebody hands you a flower and instead of smelling it, you just start dissecting it like a scientist. No, scientists kill flowers, not smell them. You can't improve the beauty of a flower by dissecting it. It lives. And when God speaks to you, it will be rooted in a historical moment that is consistent with the God of history. And yet at the same time, it will seem to you as if he has just written it now. Has that ever happened to you? Or do you find yourself still in grief? If you stay in grief, but you do not move to hope, then you will become cynical, angry, despairing, manipulative. But if you cannot grieve, and you move directly to hope, you will become shallow. You must absorb the losses of exile, personal. And you must not hurry them. They take as long as they take. And then, in the fullness of time, God will speak a promise. And it will feel to you like you're pregnant. And then, you go into five months of waiting. When a woman finds out she is pregnant, She never, to my knowledge, tries to have the baby in six months. She never says, well, this will take nine months for most people. But if I do everything right, I'll get this down to six months. Maybe I can do it in four. You're laughing. Because you know that to have a baby in four months is to risk disaster. Some things take as long as they take because it is actually in the nine months that the promise is actually formed. And while the promise is formed, the mother never just waits passively. It may look that way, but she's bonding, singing, speaking, Owning, caring, loving a child that she has and yet does not have. Waiting is hard for us in a fast paced society. It always feels like a curse. It feels like we've done something wrong, did to me, till one day it occurred to me even God waits. (laughs) I never saw this before. Like the father of a prodigal son, he waits for the child to return. Like a groom at the altar, when the bride has not yet appeared, he waits for the church to come down the aisle. You don't think this is strange? The one who is eternal is himself subject to time? Jesus said we must do the work while it is still day, for the time is coming when no one can work. And I thought, you control this. What do you mean while it's time? You just make more time. You're God. It's like you give God lessons in being God. And so it is in the fullness of time, he sent his son born of a woman born under law to redeem those under law. Oddly enough, the God who invented time is himself subject to time. He doesn't hurry anything, but he seems to allow the waiting to determine when it's time. And the thought occurred to me, maybe to wait right, is the most divine thing of all. Maybe to be holy, like God is holy. No, powerful, like God is powerful. It's not the capacity to do what you want. It's the capacity to wait until it is time. What are you waiting for?